Hello World, retrieving Brad and Christy from the cloud. Hi, I'm your host, Christy Hornland. I'm Brad Rayford. Welcome to the Risk Factors Perspectives in IoT podcast. And today we're speaking to Chad Carr, director at KPMG US, about the $6 billion business of synthetic identity fraud. You know, they do say you're the product of everyone you've ever met, right? All right. So joining us today to discuss cyber's ever-relevant hit, I've Got 99 Problems in Synthetic Identity Fraud is one, is the one and only Chad Carr. Chad, thanks for joining us today. We're excited to dive into this topic with you. But oh, before pleasure. we, yeah, before we get started, I just wanted to ask for maybe a brief introduction on yourself and what you do. Sure. So, you know, I head up uh, our groups, we know what we call uh, the Center for Cyber Analytics Research. Uh, essentially, we we bridge data science and cybersecurity science to uh, to to answer some of the world's most complex cybersecurity challenges and problems for some of the most you know some of the world's most recognizable brands. So, um, essentially, you know, our clients come to us with their problems, and in our group rallies and comes up with an innovative solution to uh, to get the job done. Now, Chad, how much of that name did you have direct influence? I can't help but notice that the Center for Cyber Analytics Research, CAR, uh, is oddly similar to the pronunciation of perhaps your last name. Spelled different, but how much influence <laughs> well, did you I have? Call over me that out name? on my Easter egg. Right? <laughs> you know, I guess that's one of the the great things about kind of you know living in a reality where you can build your own or build your own reality. Uh, you can you can you can plant little Easter eggs in there. But yes, that uh, unofficially. Uh, there's there's some method in that madness. Yes. Unofficially, officially, you heard it here first, named after Chad. I just love that you really found what you were born to do, Chad. And that's, it's great for all of us. I, you know, before we jump into the realm of fraudulent identity, though, I do want to circle actually to a question that Brad has for us to kind of understand your persona first. Um, Brad, will you do the honor? Oh, of, of course. I thought long and hard about this, Chad. Um, what I wanted to ask was what was the worst style choice that you've ever made? Come on, like personal fashion? Sure. I'll, I'll go first. Right. Okay. So for me, this was, uh, granted I grew up, I was born in the eighties. So my teenage years were in the two thousands, not a very stylish time by, by most measures. The thing I regret the most is not the cargo shorts. It's not wearing soccer slides with, with socks. It's the tribal necklaces, right? That you got at the St. Like you could buy a puka shell or you could buy a metal tribal necklace. I was a, I was a, I, I regret it, uh, but I was a necklace guy. I wore necklaces and they were not very fashionable. And I cringe when I look back at pictures of myself. That is why my neck is bare now and for forever. Nice. Nice. You know, I honestly, if I look back, I can't say I have any regrets. I, I, I you know, it's just one of those things about kind of being a builder, you make decisions uh, and you just move forward. Right. But if I look back at some of my school pictures, you know, you know, my, my experience is different. Uh, I left this, the continental United States when I was, when I was like five years old, didn't come back until I was 20 in my twenties. So I grew up overseas in Japan. Uh, so if I look over, and this, this is before internet, right? Before satellite TV and all that jazz. And so, you know, our, our life was limited to VHS tapes, right? And cassette tapes and CDs, which makes me sound so old. But uh, if I look back at some of those pictures, I would say it's definitely my vanilla ice phase, 
where, you know, today I'm, I'm clean cut, right? Shaved head, beard. But back then, though, I was I was rocking, you know. You had the full hair. Know, yeah, I mean, it was high. It was, I'd probably go through a can of hairspray to get that that bad boy up there. Um, so <laughs> how did that go over in Japan? The internet yet, so we're, we're, we're fine. How'd that go over in Japan? Well, it was, I mean, it was, it was a novelty, right? I mean, it was a, you know, blonde hair, blue eyed kid that spoke Japanese walking around. So, um, it, 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 it definitely didn't hurt. It didn't hurt, you know, making friends. Fascinating. And I just got to say at the first point there where you were like, well, I, I don't know if I really had anything. I was like, this entire podcast just turned into debunking whether Chad's a real person. <laughs> Everybody has a bad style moment. You know, yeah. you know yes. And I'm like, man, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and there's just going to be a billion photos of me that didn't, you know, they weren't on online before this podcast. So Yeah, Brad and Christy did some extra research after this call just to humanize <laughs> you. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm going to regret this one. Well, I think, I mean, that's, it's great. Uh, when I think back to mine, I'm like, I, I loved a extremely baggy, like skater girl, Avril Lavigne pant in Seattle, which is pretty much collect every single puddle as you walk along. There is no photo without them like drenched halfway through just with uh, the climate I was in. So I feel like mine were more just, just novelty items that didn't fly well in, in my climate, but I love the hair. I love hearing about the necklaces, Brad. I'm sure we can find you another one. Never say never. I was already Googling in the background or sorry, searching in the background, see if I could find one and revive it for a later podcast episode as a throwback, but I can't, I can't do it. They're more costly now because they're vintage. It's true that they're coming back around, but it sounds like we've got another podcast theme. So Chad, you'll have to be back. Um, but nonetheless, I do want to get to the subject of this podcast today. So I want to circle back. I know, honestly, a lot of us are familiar with identity fraud, probably most informed by catch me if you can. So really one interesting thing there, just a little branch out the subject of catch me if you can actually branch into cyber fraud, but understanding that that kind of identity fraud is not exactly the same as synthetic. Chad, would you be able to give us kind of what's the differentiator? What's the definition of synthetic identity fraud? Yeah, well, I think if you know what identity theft is, and if you can relate that to your, uh, you know, Catch Me If You Can movie, you're probably 95% the way to understanding uh, what synthetic synthetic ID fraud is. Um, You know, we all know what identity theft is, and we all know what fraud that transpires because of that. You know, someone steals our personal identity, and they go out and get you know try to get a credit card under that name. Um, the same rules apply with the synthetic ID fraud, except largely the the, the largest differentiator is the ID identity part. Um, synthetic ID fraud is basically when you take some legitimate PII, let's say your social security number, and you mix it with a new name, a new address, and then you take that new identity and then go ahead and you know try to commit that fraud. Um, so if you break down synthetic ID fraud, you can actually kind of see two sides of the same coin. You know, on one side, you have the synthetic ID, and on the other hand, you have the fraud, right? So really, when you couple the two, that's where you get that synthetic, synthetic ID fraud. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's great definition. I am kind of curious. So when it comes to, like you said, coupling, what are some of the signs that you're looking for or attributes that really, again, link them together? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, 
like like we kind of broke down the definition of centered ID fraud. If you break down uh, the common signs of the fraud, it really breaks down into behavioral and data. So if you look at the behavioral part of synthetic ID fraud, and let me back up a little bit, let me just kind of give a common use case that we're seeing within synthetic ID fraud. Um, going back to that, um, you know, someone using an ID to apply for a credit card, right? So in terms of signs, behavioral signs, it could be anything from, you know, how quickly are people jumping in or the applicants jumping in between the various pages of that application process? Um, you know, are they, after they create an account, are they going in and just, you know, changing the address and the information right after that account's created, right? So those are some of the behavioral aspects that you can pick up on synthetic ID fraud. And then there's data itself. Uh, you know, you know, comically, uh, you know, the Social, Social Security Administration in 2001 changed the way that they, they created um, uh, Social Security numbers. Before, before 2011, it was based on, you know, they, they took in your, your geographic location of where you were either born or, or you applied for that uh, Social Security number. But in 2011, they changed it as a way to help protect our identities. Now they're completely random. So, you know, looking at, um, I guess, the age of the Social Security number might be an indicator. Um, lack of supporting information like um, uh, driver's license information, uh, automobile ownership history, insurance property, all the stuff that would typically kind of coincide with someone with having established credit. Um, and of course, you know, the lack of, of, of using credit. So another indicator would be if someone hasn't applied for credit or used credit for a period of time, and now they're out there applying for like six different credit cards. You know, all of that would fit into the the uh, kind of the data side of an indicator of uh, synthetic ID fraud. So maybe to, to circle back on that. So the, the piece synthetic and definition too, I guess what's curious to me and what I read across is really this being, you know, partially true. There are attributes that are actually true in some degree. You've got say a social security number that is true, or you've got those data attributes, enough of a web to create a synthetic person. Is that a fair statement? Yeah, it's essentially what it is. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're in, in, in the context of that, um, that credit card fraud, they're kind of, you know, manipulating some holes in that process. So like if I took your social security number and I put my name and my address on it and I applied for new credit, I'll probably get denied because I have no credit card, no history. Oh, that, sorry, that identity has no history, but the, the bank doesn't know if that's a synthetic ID or if it's just me with that social security or legitimate person applying for credit for the first time. So regardless if that credit card is approved or not, you know, a credit file is established for that identity. So then me as a third actor, what I do is I go to another bank and apply for a loan or another credit card. And eventually I'll get a line of credit, right? And then, um, but what these fraudsters do is they don't just take that $500 limit and cash out. What they do is actually pay it down over time and slowly build up, you know, their, their credit history and their available, um, you know, credit. And then once they have $10,000, $100,000 worth of available credit across, you know, one or a hundred different identities, that's when they cash out, uh, and they, and they walk away. So maybe something kind of curious about that. I guess I'm thinking about, you know, as, as somebody that has a credit card with alerts set on it, I get a notification if there's use outside of what I'm doing, say, even sometimes my own use, you know, I'm outside of the realms of where I usually shop, or I've set a threshold for how much I'm going to spend at say a gas pump. Um, 
I, I'm able to report on that. I guess with a synthetic ID, I guess I'm curious about the tracking on it. Like how, how does that kind of add to the complexity of really saying, you know, I'm not just looking at somebody self-reporting this synthetic identity. They're not going to report on themselves per se, you know? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you nailed it. Um, Largely the victims for identity theft and synthetic ID fraud are the same. It's either your, your children or your elderly, you know, people who you know, aren't out there actively monitoring their credit reports and on top of it, you know, on top of their credit standings. And, you know, the thing is, you know, for example, if creditors, you know, they'll pull that, they'll pull the information from your credit history and they'll have your social, but they'll be going to a different address and a different name. So you, the original owner of that address, unless you're actively monitoring your own personal you know, credit report, you, you may not know, ever know that someone uh, has used some of your PII, your personal identifying information, identify information uh, in, in furtherance of some type of fraud. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the statistics that we've seen out there is, you know, synthetic identity fraud bearing about a $6 billion cost to banks. So it's obviously something that we want to track. I guess, you know, as we're noting this as, you know, a significant problem, have banks really made any initiatives that you're aware of to, to stop or really kind of focusing their hone in on? Yeah. And then it's, you're right. It's so big that it's, it's, it's advanced beyond the threshold, what I call the write-off threshold, right? It's actually having significant impacts on their, on their bottom lines. And, uh, you know, to the, to a certain degree, they, they've been combating synthetic ID fraud all along, but in the context of, you know, traditional identity theft. Now the really question is how do they, how do they, how do they deal with that at scale when, when like one social security number can spawn one or an infinite number of different identities, right? Um, and so, so there, so in the other part of the other, the other challenge of that is that, you know, they're a business and, you know, coming up with a set of controls to prevent, um, synthetic ID fraud is is easier or is easy compared to, um, you know, when, when you when you validate uh, when you when you try to assess like the user experience of things, the business side of the house, right? So you can lock it down, but then if you lock it down to the point where it's inhibiting your consumers, they'll go someplace else, right? So those groups are like look those those institutions have begun to, to search out groups like ours, and really it's it's to um, again to help them bridge the data science and the cyber science and the business side of the house to come up with kind of a, uh, a long-term viable solution that doesn't inhibit, you know, the user experience of their, of their consumers. So Chad, I've, I've got a statement, a story, and a question in that order, right? As, as you're talking about how these fraudsters work and what they're doing with credit, uh, one thing that I've seen as throughout my entire life is the importance of credit. Or you can barely turn on your TV before there's a commercial about, do you have bad debt? Do you want to improve your credit? Right? Because it's essential to everything you do. You want to buy a house, you have to have credit. You want to buy a car, have to have credit. Want to buy a large electronic, have to have credit. You need credit, even if it's not, even if you're not using a credit card, they still want to run credit checks, right? Are you going to be able to meet some type of minimum threshold uh, for, for making payments and such? Now, I have a best friend. He's my oldest childhood friend. And uh, his father opened up a credit card in his name when he was two years old. And every month, the father would buy one tank of gas on this credit card and pay it off. And as he got older, my friend uh, asked his dad, dad, when do I get to have this credit card? He said, when you can pay the bill yourself 
and you can be responsible with the payments. Until then, I'm going to manage it, and this will be a gift to you. And neither of us understood it until we were in college, and his dad gave him the credit card, and he had an 800 for his credit score, which for those who are not attuned to credit reports, that's a perfect credit score. No late payments, no overdues, no overdrafts, no bad bounces. I mean, it's hard to get an 800 credit score, right? Now, as I look at how those bank offerings have changed and thinking about, do I want to do something? Can I do something similar for my own kids? There's now offerings from banks like debit cards that build credit or other offerings where they're trying to make it easier to get credit and to build credit without actually having to have credit. Do these offerings make it easier or can they make it easier for fraudsters to solidify or cement a synthetic ID if they're able to open a debit account with some real money, build credit against that identity, and then go right into a, a credit card with a larger credit balance or credit limit? Yeah, I mean, well, I think go back to what we, we spoke about earlier, where, you know, these three, the, the end point is for these threat actors is not to get, you know, a line of credit is to, to build an established line of credit, right? So, and, you know, threat actors are just like everyone else, they're going to follow past of least resistance, like, like water, right? So if they can, you know, easily get those, say, entry level, earlier level, you know, uh, lines of credit, as opposed to going after some larger, you know, you know, adult credit card, maybe I would be, I would be hoping that the financial institutions are kind of tailoring their, their applications to, to the fact that, you know, minors may be, um, you know, going after these lines of credit and therefore these institutions, institutions should infer some higher degree of, you know, scrutiny in terms of, uh, of the, you know, the application processes. I think what's interesting there is, I mean, you're our AI machine learning guy on this call, but I'm thinking, you know, our end use case here with that, it, it comes out to be the same, but kind of like you said, the pathways that they're taking, it, it is behavioral. It's also just kind of the steps that the banking institutions have already put out our financial institutions. I guess I'm, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned having to use a bunch of different, say, cross-business unit perspectives to deal with this problem, what, what is involved in really the strategy for addressing? Because if I were to think about having to analyze every single application um, in terms of operations, that's a very heavy lift as well as, again, you know, an opportunity for a process or some of maybe our and streamlining or enhancements through AI machine learning. I'm curious from your side, what you're seeing, you know, how does this loop in with the use cases going on? I'd like, are you asking like how many, like within, with, I guess, within how many or how many groups within a company synthetic ID fraud would, would touch, or would you need to bring together to, to, to remediate synthetic ID fraud? Yeah. So when, when you approach synthetic ID, identity fraud as a business problem that we're going to solution, who are you engaging with to help kind of build a task force together? Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're, you're right. And when you, when you, when you speak about synthetic ID fraud, it's, it's as much as a technical discussion as it is a, a business discussion. So you really have to make sure that the technical strategy of your synthetic ID fraud detection aligns with the business strategy. Um, and then when you look at it 
from that perspective, you, you can begin to see the gravity of what it takes to actually pull it off. Cause now you're touching upon groups, uh, you know, fraud, risk management, various groups and you know, entities around within your operations, your cybersecurity, your CISO, all these people uh, have to come together because what you're doing is essentially is when you are looking to solve a problem with AI and ML, you're doing like two things. One is you're, you're, you're bringing the, together these islands of data and systems that through traditional security mentality was, they were segregated, right? To, to reduce spillover. Now under AI and ML, you have to bring those together. Right, um, and then the other part that you're doing is you're actually working in between in, within the white space in between all those different tech stacks, right? So if you map out that data and those systems, it, both of those have their own owners. You have their, you know, people who are tracking from a budget's perspective. All those people need to come in and play a part in the overarching kind of synthetic ID fraud uh, solution. Yeah, and maybe I'll share an example that I was looking into. It wasn't necessarily a client of mine, but it was more a story being told. So for some of the loan approval process, what they had been running into was basically a synthetic ID that was perfect in pretty much every account. It was highly linked. Um, the only thing that was different was actually the cell phone number uh, attached to that profile. And so when they were beginning to actually do further discovery, they were finding, you know, none of these uh, listed mobile devices are actually connected to the identity. Again, what you were saying earlier, you know, you've got children or elderly that are not checking their credit reports, but then you've got this kind of suspect uh, mobile device attached to the profile. And, you know, I'm, I guess I'm thinking from your side, is the purpose in going across both business and technical there really to identify opportunities like that? Or is it also just to kind of help with informing the business as a whole, our operations are impacted by this? Yeah, it's great. Yeah. If you look at the, I guess the, the three typical pillars that, and I guess, and then the, the evolution of AI and ML, you know, the, the three pillars are always kind of deeper detection, right? And then, there's some type of degree of, of force multiplication, right? How, how, to, how to use technology to, to augment, supplement your, your, your staff. Uh, and then the third one is, you know, self-learning. You know, you, you, you want your tech, your technology to, to evolve, you know, in line with and hopefully in advance of these emerging threats, right? And if you map, overlay that with kind of the where we were at yesterday, where we at today, and where we at tomorrow with AI and ML, um, I think that's where you can kind of see um, all the different kind of applications and all the different touch points within an organization. So, you know, we might hone in on the synthetic ID identification part, say on the on the on the website. But on the back end, you have tremendous gains, especially on the staff multiplication front. You know, we, we work with some folks who, you know, a fraudulent application kind of touches the hands of 60 different people, you know, six zero, six zero, you know, 60 people, which is absurd if you think about or insane if you think about how many applications that these these folks process so you know with with ai and ml you can reduce that to maybe five people so there's huge you know ripple effects in terms of cost savings uh, with ai and ml so i guess what you're seeing there is that strategy something that you've seen in other industries as well being adopted noticing now from say the financial institutions that this is something that like you said can actually reduce the workload that you've got from an operation side. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, 
you know, in this use case, we talked about synthetic ID fraud in terms of an application, you know, someone's applying for a credit card, but, you know, I, I'd venture to say that any, any service out there that, you know, is requiring people to submit an application that has an identity associated to it, and the output of that is some type of financial gain, you know, I, I would venture to say that threat actors are already papering that system with, with you know, synthetic, you know, synthetic applications, right? Um, and so that's just in the context of synthetic ID fraud. But if you really get into the application of AI and ML, then you start looking at the whole operations in terms of, okay, let's identify all these semi-manual processes that we've got going on. Those are prime for AI and ML, right? So if you look at, um, you know, how, 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 you know, in what areas can we apply AI and ML to, you know, especially in the context of cybersecurity, well, that's when you get into everything from, you know, managed detection response, like, you know, MDR, uh, prioritization of threats and vulnerabilities, zero day detection, all these things that would require an enormous amount of brain power can get be accomplished in, in really milliseconds when you start uh, leveraging AI and ML. Yeah. So I, I guess kind of to, to draw to that too. So we've got the use case with financial institutions, but there was something in there that you mentioned about, say, for every application process that you may be going through. So I guess I'm, I'm curious if other industries were listening to this, what might they be looking for in their processes and how they're engaging with their customers or their, say, employees, where this would also be a relevant use case for them? I, yeah, you actually just, the, the very last statement is, is, is pretty powerful in itself is I mean, a lot of people, when they talk about you know, synthetic ID fraud or applying AI and ML, it's usually from an external perspective, from a threat actor, but you can take the same thing and inverse it from an insider threat, whether it's nefarious or not. Anytime that your own people have to submit applications or do something, you know, it's also right for, for AI and ML. So maybe outside of just synthetic identity fraud, what you're getting at there, you know, how do you predict AI machine learning will be used to protect user identities across industries, kind of based on what you're saying right now? Well, I think, you know, when it comes to synthetic ID fraud or synthetic ID, it's really what I call like the art of totality of circumstances, right? There isn't, it's not as simple as in, hey, this person is, um, trying to do something, I need to validate their identity. So I'm going to go to a third party's party, do that validation, come back with like a, a one digit, you know, one or zero to let me know if they're legit. Um, you know, threat actors uh, and, and technology, you know, they're, they're, they're evolving. I mean, there isn't like I, I saw, uh, I, I teach at night and, and you know, I'm starting to see more papers that are, gen are generated by AI and ML, where you can just literally with just a, a, a topic, can use AI and ML to produce a legitimate original thought leadership piece that will bypass all similarity checks. I mean, that's just in use case of school, but now if you throw in, you know, that, but in identity fraud, it's, 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 it's very, it's very complicated and challenging uh, uh, problem that once you get close to getting your mind wrapped around, it changes. So we have to leverage, uh, some, you know, AI and ML to kind of fill in the gaps. So if I, if I pull those two things together, right, because looking at a generative AI for document creation or content creation is not something I'm going to say I haven't looked at for professional reasons. Um, but if we couple synthetic IDs 
plus the desire to uh, crystallize the reality of those identities as banks become more sophisticated in their detection processes. Now I can build a online presence without having to have a human create a persona, right? I can have this, this generative AI build my Facebook, do my Instagram, be uh, write tweets for me, right? And it's all self-sustaining. So now I have a legitimate online presence that can be tracked and traced, which I imagine starts to, <laughs> is uh, the war of escalation, right? The more we use AI and ML internally to detect things, we're also creating new things that our attackers can use for nefarious reasons. Is that a fair assumption? Oh, yeah, spot on, yeah. Cool. And that brings me to my next question. So behind you, and I've had the luxury of seeing behind you before, uh, for those who can't see, there's a whiteboard behind Chad and he has a phrase on there. And, and Chad, I'd like you to, if you wouldn't mind, tell us what that phrase is and why, why you have it there where everyone can see it when they, when they talk with you. Why, what is the importance of that phrase to you? Yeah. So the phrase is, is one of my, my quotes is every day, no matter what, build. Right. And, you know, why I have it back there, because that's my personality. I always try to put, you know, you know, it's funny as as we all went in this COVID environment, you know, we're having meetings left and right on teams on zoom or whatever. And then we shifted to, Hey, video is, is kind of intrusive. We'll just do voice. Now we're kind of getting back to video, you know, as we get back to the offices, Um, you know, where other people have gone through with the blurred background, whatever, you know, I'm, you know, I, I want to build, relationships. You know, we are developed, we're trying to solve really complex problems. I want to decrease the distance between, you know, me and you and just get down, get down to business and small things like that kind of explain kind of, you know, my personality, what I, what I enjoy doing. And uh, to go back to what Christy said early on, yeah, I, I, I've been incredibly fortunate to like fit in an insane amount of living and I can really identify and answer the question, like what I want to do with my life, right? Like what, what, uh, what makes you jump out of bed at night? What makes it hard to turn off the laptop at night? At, uh, sorry, in the morning and at night. Um, and it's really the building. I love the conceptual part of thinking about a solution to a problem, you know, making that conceptual tangible and then that tangible valuable to, to a client. Um, and so that's, that's what that means in the back is no matter what it is, you build, whether it's yourself, your family relationships, piece of technology, every day you just have to build something, right? Don't do it all, but something. Just baby steps up the mountain, you know, each 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 day. Well, Chad, with that, me and Brad will be joining the army that you're building. It was a great pitch. We love it. We're a part of it. We're ready to go. Enlist us. Consider uh, us two additional builders for your task force. Yeah. More misfits for the island. Welcome <laughs> aboard. Perfect. Perfect. Well, I want to say thank you, Chad. Thank you for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. We're so happy to have you. And like we said at the beginning, we'll have to have you back again. That's a, that's a promise on here. Well, next time I come back, I'm going to, I'm going to bring some pictures. Uh, I can show you my hairstyle back in the day. Fashion regrets. <laughs>